Welcome to the Waggle Dance Podcast. Three guys, Duncan, Dave and Andy. A preacher, a leader and a designer who want to explore ways to live life with a little less friction. A hive of conversation waxing lyrical on faith, family and friendship. Welcome to the Waggle Dance Podcast. Well, hello again and welcome to the Waggle Dance Podcast. My name's Andrew Stewart and I'm here again with my great friends, Dave Cortine and Duncan Banks. How you doing, guys? I've never heard himself call himself Andrew Stewart before. He's, he's been swallowing the dictionary, hasn't he? Andrew Stewart. Are you trying to push your kind of, you know, your name higher up the list? Are you trying to get, get up another social, you know, climb another social ladder look i'll dig you out of it it's just my name it's just the introduction um and, and actually do you know what i don't normally do the introduction it's normally dave and dave is so slick um second only to yourself of course duncan so i missed out the g and i'm wondering now whether when i go back to introduce him whether i now need to introduce you formally as andrew g stewart or whether andy's good enough you know it's, you know it's thrown open a whole series of of debates that we that we can have about how we do this intro now it's, it's how we address ourselves as well, isn't it? <laughs> well, unusually, do you know what? I'm going to get straight to the point. And I'm not just saying this, but if you're listening, and we hope you are, you've chosen one of the best episodes so far. And, and do you know what the funny thing is? I've not even heard it. We're recording this live on Zoom, but I've got a really good feeling about this one. So you're listening to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Waggle Dance Podcast. In this series, Dave, Duncan and I are introducing friends who have taught us something invaluable. Last week, it was my gig and my dear friend Susie Powling shared her insights, wisdom and thoughts on the power of the written word. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. In this episode, Dave is introducing his good friend, Trevor Waldock. Trevor is a man of many hats. He's an author, a leader, a mentor, a visionary, and wrestles with many of the big issues of our time. A former founder and CEO of the NGO charity Emerging Leaders, Trevor has a background in education, psychology, theology, and has an unswerving passion and conviction on the power of personal transformation. And you know what? His favorite ice cream flavor is strawberry. Did I get that right, Trevor? No, he's shaking his head. <laughs> Hey, anyway, look, in this episode, Dave's going to introduce a friend who taught him, amongst other things, how to leave a great legacy. Trevor, welcome to the Waggle Dance podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's an honor, truly. Thank you, guys. Brilliant. Brilliant. So just before Dave, um, I hand over to Dave. Trevor, can I ask you, how did your paths cross? How did you get to know Dave? Yes, good question. Uh, a mutual friend. Um, so I think I was talking with this mutual friend, all things leadership. And he said, uh, he said, you really should meet this guy, uh, Dave Cortine. He's a businessman, but he's got such a big heart. And, um, so I think you'd really hit it off. So, um, I can't remember how long it took us to actually meet, but I remember we met at Ufford Park Golf Club. So we, you know, had great synergy around so many things, particularly a around a whole load of areas of leadership, I think. Brilliant. So thanks. So yes, I think it's my cue to kind of uh, start the conversation. So yeah, Trevor, it's brilliant that you've joined us. Thank, thanks Great, so thanks. much. And uh, the the I suppose part of what we're going to talk about is one of the books that you wrote, which is probably one of the best, if not the best leadership book that I've read, which is called To Plant a Walnut Tree. And it has the accolade, actually, of being the leadership book that I've bought and given away to most people. So, um, wow. so yeah, so that's, that's, that's the, I think the power of a book is when you read it and you think actually, you know, so-and-so should read that. And so oh, that would really help. So -and, -so. Right. and so that's kind of what I've done so much. So that actually when I went to have a quick look at it to, to, to remind myself of it before we spoke, I was given my last one away. So, so I didn't actually have one. So I had to download it on my, on my yeah. phone to kind of remind myself of yeah. it. So there, so there you go. But where I want to start with this, before we come on to yeah. talk about some of the aspects of of like the le legacy which is really relevant you know for someone of my age and starting to think about mm. what what my legacy would would be i want to sort of just explore a little bit about the concept of leadership first because yeah. i always remember one of the things that you taught me early on when we when we had our first meetings like you say at Alpha park etc was that 
you know, I think your your view is that we're we're all leaders, aren't we? We we all get the chance to lead in some way, whether it just be ourselves. And so I suppose it would be great to sort of kick off. Just talk a little bit about how you feel in many respects, we are all have the opportunity to be to be in some form of leadership. Sure. I, I think for me, the way we frame the issue of leadership has been very unhelpful over the generations. I think we've framed leadership often as a role and for the few. Uh, whereas my own view is there is no neutral ground when it comes to leadership at all. Um, and by that, I mean, everybody is being impacted around leadership in everyone's lives every day. So let me just dig into that. Um, early on in, in my kind of leadership development career, I was trying to find what I a definition of leadership that I could use all over the world with the, with the richest and the poorest that I was working with. Uh, and I came across a definition by Howard Gardner from Harvard. And he said this, leadership is the ability to create a story that affects the thoughts, feelings, and actions of other people. <laughs> and uh, Warren Berenice says about like, three to 400 definitions of leadership, but that's the one that grabbed me. And the realized part of it for me where I was working in some of the communities is, I thought everybody understands the idea of story. It doesn't matter who you are in the world's poorest communities. If you've had no education, everybody understands story. So when I say it's, there is no neutral ground. It's this, everybody's life is a real story and it's being written every moment of every day. We are creating our own autobiography and we've been doing it today, all of us here. So the issue then is who's got the pen? Who's got the pen? Because if I don't have the pen to write my life story, then somebody else is writing it for me. And again, that's been happening today. You know, we'll have received emails, phone calls, nudges, conversations. We'll have had good conversations, conflicting conversations. And all of those conversations have been kind of nudging us and pushing us and whatever, <clears throat> trying to influence us. Influence us. And, and if we let them, then those things will have shaped our story today. So all leadership is, is saying, no, I will choose what's the story I want to create out of this. So that's why I think everybody in the world is a leader at some level, everyone, because at the very least, you lead your own life and you lead your own relationships. And I think looked at it that way, if you then look at what the problem of leadership is in the public sphere, so many people have been put in roles of leadership who don't know how to lead because they have never taken ownership of leading their own lives. So one example, I'd ask a chief exec one time who'd say, talk about vision and mission and the rest of it. I'd say, how important do you think it is for your organization to have a, a vision and a mission, mission and a vision? He said, very important. I'd say, on a scale of one to 10, how important? He said, 10. So I said, brilliant. Tell me what the purpose, the mission and the vision for your life is. And they'd be flummoxed because they hadn't done that work on themselves. And of course, if you've not done that work on yourself, how on earth do you do that work with others? And you see it because they then have to hire in consultants to help them work out how to form a mission and a vision for their organization because they don't know how to do it in their own lives. If a leader knew, if they'd gone through that process for themselves, they would have some idea about how you lead someone through that process. So that's kind of shapes my view around leadership, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's brilliant. The whole Gardner quote of, of you know, the ability to tell a story that empowers mm. others or encourages others to follow is is one I've, you know, any of my team that are listening are going to go, oh, that's where he got it from, because I'm always talking about about the Gardner quote and the, and the power of, of story. Um and and I love the analogy about the fact that we all we all hold the pen and, and can write our own story. And I, and I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Sometimes I think we we all feel whether we've been in leadership for a long time, like like some of us on this podcast or whether or whether we've never been in leadership. There is a there is a sense that it brings a degree of responsibility and. And sometimes a, a lot of people I see people in my own team. that I think, well, you'd be a great manager or mm. you'd be a great great regional manager or whatever but 
it's hard for them to see that in themselves because they worry about the responsibility. And, I, and again, in a work setting, I was talking to someone the other day about taking on a role that, that they would have been perfect for, that required yeah. a bit of leadership of, a, of people that may have been a bit, a bit older than them and a bit more experienced, but they would have been perfect for the role. And, and uh, I remember that the, the, they were saying, well, she, she said to me, oh, you know, I'm Peter Pan. I'm not old enough. I don't, you know, and I, and yeah. I kind of said, no, listen, Peter Pan learned how to fly. It just takes faith and trust. And to yeah. a certain extent with leadership, that's what it's about. It's just having that, that confidence in our, in ourselves, don't you think? And, and a belief yeah. that we can actually make it happen. I think it is. But that's why I also think this upside down view of it is because we have such a top down view is people look at that and say, oh, well, I couldn't do that. I can't take on that responsibility. I can't because they haven't had the experience within themselves. And I think if we can help people locate within themselves what they're doing in their own life and then say, all I'm talking about is that you do more of that, whatever you were doing, is what that thing you've been doing in your own life, do more of that. I, I think you use the word responsibility. I mean, the word responsibility just simply means you've got the ability to respond. Yeah. And to me, that's what it was about is, you know, I, I, I think... I remember doing leadership at 10 years old, literally. I remember because I was young enough to see the Biafran crisis, famine, um, as a 10-year-old in primary school. And looking at that, going, like, what, what can we do? What can we do? And, and, you know, I got a bunch of mates together and I wrote to the Save the Children Fund and they'd got a kids club and we did that and we started raising money. And, and But we didn't call it leadership. We called it the ability to respond here's a problem what do you do about it how do you respond um i, I remember when i was in that well i've now been slagged off management consultants i i, I did very well as <laughs> being a management consultant as well but i remember the first time i was working i was employed by a european consultancy and they they wanted me to go and teach negotiation skills and i said i've never negotiated anything in my life you know, in my mind, thinking big negotiations, you know, I didn't go and solve global conflict through the UN or what. what. And he said, yes, you have. I said, no, I haven't. Yes, you have. No, I haven't. And I, he said, he said, have you ever bought a car? <coughs> I said, yeah. He said, have you ever bought a house? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, didn't you have to haggle and negotiate? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, that's negotiation. You've done it. And, and what it was, it sounds a bit duh, really, but I kind of went, oh, is that what that is? And I think because leadership is actually embedded in everybody's everyday life choices, but we don't make the connection. We kind of write ourselves out of that leadership script. And I think we can help people write themselves into it by helping them say, that thing you did there, <laughs> when you got those four neighbors together to go and do that person's garden and then that person's garden, that's called leadership. Oh, is that what that was? You know, I, so I, I think I, we could do more. I think one of the, the things, yeah, sure. And I think one of the things that I've always found fascinating, the stories that you've told is obviously you've, you've had experience of, of delivering leadership training and, and helping develop leaders that are working in some of the biggest, you know, blue chip companies around the world. Mm. But you've also through, and Andy explained in the, in the intro, your work with emerging leaders that you set up kind of developing mm. leadership skills in some of the poorest uh, parts of the parts of the world. And I think, you know, the, the interesting thing that's come out of that is that effectively, although they're in very different settings, the basic principles behind leadership are exactly the same, whether you're around the boardroom in, in New York or London, or whether yep. you're in, you know, the depths of the, the shanty towns and, and, and places that, you, that you've been. When I started Emerging Leaders, so I was working with corporate, with Blue Chip. In fact, I had just been working with one of the Irish banks and we had a bunch of executives at Croke Park in the executive boxes. And I was meant to be training about 14 of them and I think seven of them turned up and half of them were on their mobile phones. And, and I, I just remember, because I then went from there and flew into the slums of Zambia and it was this contrast of people that were getting brilliant leadership development and and treating it like a wine tasting session and then going into the slums and, and just seeing so I went into the slums of Lusaka at, when AIDS was at its highest so the the population of middle-aged people just didn't really exist you've got orphans all over the streets and you've got grandmas with eight kids in a 
in a house no bigger than my kitchen, you know. So I was seeing that and, and thinking I, we have to do something. Again, ability to respond. What can you do? And uh, I thought, well, no one's going to get out of extreme poverty unless they learn to lead themselves because they're waiting for the cavalry to come. And I knew the cavalry wasn't coming. So it's like, well, how do you do that? And the thing that went through my head was this word in you used it of principle. So I use principle like gravity is gravity operates, whether in London, New York, the slums of Lusaka, the slums of Nairobi, the slums of Cape Town. Gravity works everywhere. That to me is a principle. So I thought, well, if I could discover or distill what the principles of leadership are, as opposed to kind of cultural ideas, then those principles should work anywhere. And that was kind of the founding idea really that I just put it to the test and um, I believed it would work and and it really did work yeah. yeah that's that's great that's brilliant so let's come on and talk a bit about the um you know the 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 book the and yep. uh, to plant to plant a walnut tree and I suppose the the first part of it that always resonated me is I love the story behind the title so yes. so for the benefit of everyone else do you want to just just talk us through why why it's called uh, to plant a walnut tree so um, it's called, Plant. so I've had a, a mentor and an elder in my life since probably 19, 20 year old. He's still alive to this day. Um, and he just said to me one day, he said, you know, my dad said to me once, he said, the most unselfish thing you can do with your life is plant a walnut tree because you probably won't see the fruit in your own lifetime. And um, so obviously that story stuck with me. That's, so that's where the title came from. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So, so the the concept of the book is that you know when we go from potentially leadership role to leadership role, or, or just in our in our whole careers and what we do, we actually learn learn our different aspects of of how we're going to develop our careers. And there comes a point in time when, and, and you use the phrase, where you want to kind of climb a higher tree and get a get a higher perspective. Mm. And and it's this whole idea of so what is beyond leadership? I've I've got to the point where perhaps for whatever reason in my career I've hit a glass ceiling it's a bit like yeah. in sport there is a time it yes. becomes very obvious to us in sport that gets to a point where that's the highest level of that particular sport football cricket tennis i'm ever going to play and it's yeah. only downwards from here and to a certain extent that happens in our work careers as well but what this book unpacks and what you talk about in this book is is going sort of beyond leadership so so again i'd, I'd love just to hear you talk about that for for, for a moment or two sure i, I mean i think it came from a number of places for me um so I'd, I'd written the book, 18 Challenges of Leadership, and I was kind of, well, okay, what next? What do I write about next? I wanted to write something, and I didn't know what I wanted to write. And then I just I kind of thought, well, what would a leader do now? <laughs> and I thought, well, actually, the thing about the leaders, in my mind, is leaders don't, uh, leaders don't deliver the future. They create the future. It's like it's not just like here's this thing we'll get it done. It's it's actually no they actually create the future. So the future is beyond the horizon. You can't see it. So it's like well what is it? What and I just found myself thinking I keep talking about leadership, but well what's the assumption here? The assumption here is that leadership is the kind of top of the pile. You achieve leadership, and then you retire and go and play golf. Um, so I just thought, well, that's a huge assumption. So I challenged the assumption, is there something that lies beyond leadership? And so I started digging into that and to cut a, a long journey short is the answer is yes, is eldership. Eldership is what has always lie, lay beyond leadership in traditional cultures for forever. Um, so I kind of hit that word eldership, but then I had a very negative response because um, I... I didn't grow up in a religious background. In fact, you know, my dad was a staunch atheist, but I, I had a religious experience. I came into the world of the church and they kept talking about elders. And, um, and I, I kept meeting these people with elders and I thought these, I, I don't know what they, why they're called elders. Cause in my mind, all I saw were managers. Mm. I, I just saw administrators and managers i didn't see even leaders half the time if i'm <laughs> brutally honest about it um but i didn't so who are these elders and, and so it kind of I, I let it niggle with me really to just say okay so what is this thing what is eldership what is this thing that lies beyond 
um, leadership. And, and at the root of it was this sense, well, elders are people who leave a legacy. They're, who they are outlives them. Um, so, you know, can keep quoting Nelson Mandela because it's, it's an easy hook, but, um, you know, Nelson Mandela's influence is as alive today as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, sure. And whether it's a known elder like Mandela or other people who are less known, their influence in our lives continues um, in our lives. So who, for me, it was like, well, who are the older, wiser people? And the phrase I had that I didn't see that niggled me is, I, I use this phrase, they've made the journey. They've made the journey. That they have been somewhere in themselves that I haven't been. And that therefore they can help me navigate my journey because because my journey will be different than theirs, but they'll have seen some stuff. They'll have they'll have dealt with things. They'll have a perspective. Um, and and it, it's what would that look like? So that that was all of that was the idea. And then, so I I dug into it and I talked with people and researched it and it took me into the foothills of the Renzori Mountains in Uganda and all kinds of studying of Native American, all the rest of it. But then the big question was, well, how, how do you shape the book? And the book was shaped because I was thinking this concept of eldership is so not talked about <laughs> at all. How, how do you address that whole process, the learning journey, if you like? So I thought, well, why don't I write it through the eyes of someone who's in leadership, who's trying to work this out. So almost teach the book, if that's the right word, through someone's own journey. So that, that's where it all came from. Yeah, and it's brilliant. And I, I think that's why I love it. It's, it's, uh, it's back to the power of story and you're telling someone's story of journeying from leadership to this yeah concept of of eldership through well, almost like an autobiographical kind of mm. way in some respects and so you're sort of learning the principles as you go through that journey journey mm. with I think that's what one of the things that really resonated me with me with the book so um this idea of eldership the other thing that that really that really strikes me and I think particularly as I'm you know mid-50s and 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 sort of uh, uh planning what what the the rest of my life looks like is that is that eldership is not only beneficial to the people that you help to advise hmm. but but there's a huge benefit and and sort of uh power and uh yeah value in in becoming an elder to the actual elder themselves and i think that's yes. that's really and that's the bit that i never got before so yeah. so can you just sort of again I explain that because i think that's that's a wonderful sense of hope and and concept for those of us that are in that position of thinking about the next step uh to take so yeah i'd love, love to hear your thoughts on that sure and, and i don't think there's a, a quick uh, easy answer or thoughts around any of that let me start the other way around and my uh, what I spend all my time trying to work out at the moment is I think we start this question too late. <laughs> uh, I, I leapt around the kitchen the other day when I heard Simon Sinek, who everybody knows for the power of why and all the rest of it. I heard him actually say he was being interviewed and he said, why is it we wait to, until we're 70 to start talking about our legacy? Why are we not talking about it at 20? And, and, yeah. and I leapt around the kitchen because that is exactly what I'm working on right now, is that how, how do you frame or help young people frame their whole life in the light of becoming an elder? You know, one of the principles we know about leadership is you always begin with the end in mind. Well, what's the end in mind of my life? So, well, and you say, well, it's when I die. Well, is it? Doesn't need to be. The end in mind could be beyond when you die. That's the idea of legacy. So if I was to lead a, leave a legacy, then who will I become so that that legacy is left behind afterwards? And as you, you know, when is the time to start thinking about that? Well, probably 18, 19, 20, because then you will shape the rest of your life experience around that. 
Because I think the difficulty is then seen is, you know, you hit the midlife and, and that can be different for different, you know, it could be 40, 50, 60, 70. So I'm using that generally. And you go, well, what next? What next? And, and, and the what next goes really deep because of our identity is so tied up with what we did. You know, I was the leader of this organization, and, and I know that having just had to work through that in the last 12 months, having handed over the leadership of emerging leaders. Um, you know, there is a painful journey, which, you know, however much work you do on yourself, there's still more, more work to be done. So your identity, well, who am I if I'm not this? You know, who's Dave Cortine if he's not the MD of, you know, Mosaic or whatever? Who are you? And, and part of the reason, because we haven't answered that question, I think we can often hold on to leadership too long um, rather than start saying, okay, well, this, this, this phase, this second half of life phase is an amazing opportunity now. I mean, the way Jung looked at it is the first half of life is you get out there, you kind of build the scaffolding and all the rest of it. But all of that is simply for the real work, which is the second half of your life. First half of your life, you're kind of getting yourself in a reasonable shape. But the second half of life is when you actually fulfill your purpose. So I think the power of it potentially is, you know, you thought it was good up to 40 or 50. Wow. You know, the real depth work is just about to begin. But it's a different kind of work. And that's, I think, where the challenges is a lot of us don't want to do the different kind of work you know we all we want to be mandela but we don't really want 27 years in prison not knowing <laughs> we're ever going to come out and um i always think there's a verse in the bible isn't it so i want to know christ and the power of his resurrection and all the rest of it and share in his sufferings and you kind of go whoa not that bit <laughs> but actually that's the whole point and one of the chapters in the walnut tree is i actually devote a whole chapter to suffering because there is no other way that it, you, you will never meet a truly great person who hasn't suffered. Mm. I remember, I think I mentioned it in the book, uh, the, the Harry Seacombe, the, um, the comedian, and he was doing a round with Alice, Peter Alice, the golfer used to take celebrities on a round of golf and chat with them on the way. And I, I remember, remember it was a great program. It's a great, it was a great program. program wasn't it? I remember yeah. Peter Alice talked with Harry Seacombe once about the younger comedians coming up and i always remember because harry seacombe just said they haven't suffered enough <laughs> they haven't <laughs> suffered and what he meant was you know they want to do a, one night at the comedy club off leicester square and then they've made it you know yeah uh, and he said we were in and out booed you know and we slept in the back of our car and you know it, it was agony for ages and ages and ages um but I think that's part of it, isn't it? I think the the you know we all have the mountaintop moments, and we all have the times when we're walking through the the depths of the valley, and and, yeah. and life is tough. That's that's true in personal life. That's true in in business life. Um, and I think you know, looking back from for me from my perspective, the times when I've grown the most and that I've learned the most have been have been walking through the tough times, not. Yeah. not the times when when things are all are all go, kind of going well um, yeah. and i think the 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 concept that actually moving on you talked about there where actually you know the best is yet to come that when you move on from leadership mm. into into giving back and and providing yeah. some form of eldership that actually hopefully <laughs> you reward the people that 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 yeah. are uh being eldered by you um but actually it's incredibly rewarding for, for yourself. And I think that yeah, that's something that I kind of, you know, we, we've been through a number of structures with, within the, the business that I own. We, we, um, we sold out to PLC, we brought the business back. Yeah. Um, and I remember one of the impacts from reading your book was, was thinking about, okay, so how do I want to end yeah. my time in Mosaic? It was a business yeah. that I sat with my best mate, um, Steve, he's still my best mate and he's still my business partner 34 years on. And, um, and so how do we, now that we're in our mid fifties, how do we plan to, to exit? And I remember feeling one of the things most strongly 
that as a result of the books and some of the conversations that we've had about this idea of of wanting to to not sell it again but wanting to actually develop and grow those leaders coming up through our organization yeah, that we could pass yeah, the business on so there was a sense yeah. of passing it on to those people who'd worked really hard and 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 yeah. worked with us and understood the culture of what we were trying to achieve and create for mm. them a framework that would enable us to pass that on and we've been working on that now for for probably about eight or nine years in terms yeah. of how we yeah. how we hand that on and and i'm you know that's still a real a real passionate goal mm. but i suppose moving on to sort of the next thing that i wanted to cover with you you know what's what's happened in the last year um has presented a huge challenge for us because Absolutely. um you know covid was something that w- was no one had planned for no one had no yeah. one had foresaw but for our business that that runs health clubs and day spas you know we've been shut yeah. for eight out of the last 12 months um yeah. And, you know, we 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 were get, building ourselves into a position where financially we were going to be able to potentially start to hand that business over. And now we're in a position where you know, the business has been has been decimated, you know, financially. Yeah. Um, and we we still have to find a way out of the woods yet. We're still we're still closed. We're still you know, we still lose money every month because actually, you know, the furlough doesn't work, etc. So uh that's a long way in to, to sort of the i suppose what i wanted to to unpick with you is that you know how do you still create a legacy when all the plans that you are doing for building that legacy go go wrong because there's still a way through i mean we'll still be able to create a legacy but yeah. but right now it's going to take an awful lot awful lot of replanning so so you know how how would you what advice would you have at this stage? And there's bound to be other people that are in a similar position to me. Yeah. About how do we start to replan when our our plans for legacy have just you know we've we've put our ladder up against a higher tree and that higher tree has just been chopped chopped down in front of us. Yeah. Well, it's a huge question, and I I hesitate to even engage with it because I feel for what you you know you've put your whole life into this, and uh, and I know you know some of the figures that you've talked about in terms of what it's costing so i I feel very hesitant um in a general so let me just talk about general the principles if you like that i would bring to bear so my personal experience of that is is not in any way as difficult as yours but i i handed over the the leadership of an organization that i had founded and grown from just a good idea into being in 16 countries and doing all that it was doing. And I handed that over intentionally uh, in the spring. And just at the point of handing over where I thought, great, I'll have a month off and then I'll be on to the next thing, um, COVID happened. Uh, and because I wasn't, I wasn't employed and I wasn't even self-employed, it means I, I've not had any money since then pretty much um so so suddenly everything goes and the thing you think well i i was the leader of this so you kind of got this image or this title i knew what i was and then suddenly well who are you now you know and people say well what are you doing you know well it's you know staff (laughs) you know what am i doing and you know the questions you ask yourself every morning is what am i doing you know so there are they're the, the outer questions like a business and all the rest and then there are the inner questions so all i can say is the to me the focus has to be on my purpose in life my mission rather than what i'm doing so that's what i hold on to what's my mission why am i here why am i occupying a place on the planet because to me, that's the most important question because that's then like the compass point. Because if I hold on to that as the compass point rather than the particular kind of manifestation of it, which might be I'm leading this right now and I was leading that before, it means I can then reinvent because I, I've still got the compass point and it doesn't make it any less devastating. And I, I, I'm kind of wanting to to just honour that the personal devastation for you and many, many other business leaders is, is in the midst of that, 
is I hold on to my purpose. Why am I here? Yep. And that was the biggest question I asked myself at the beginning. So what is your mission? Has it changed? No. I still want to raise the next generation of Mandalas. That's what I want to do. And I predominantly want to do that in communities that are very poor, very vulnerable. That's okay. So, so you can't do it that way anymore. And it, uh, so, but at least that question allowed me to start saying, so what can you do? And it was the same time I had a book that I'd written called Becoming Mandela Letters to My Sons, all about all this kind of stuff. And it'd been sitting there and I'd sent it out to 50 publishers and they all said, no, 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 no. Nice book. Thanks very much. No, no. So you go, well, even that feels like it's not going anyway. But I, the turning point for me is when I stopped thinking about getting the book published, which is a manifestation of a mission. I stopped worrying about the book. I said, what's the idea here? And then I said, ah, oh, okay, the idea is this. Okay, is there another way you can do that? Um, so I, I, I found a whole other route and I'm finding a whole other route uh, to do that. Um, and it's actually come through the pain, the pain making me ask the, that, the deep purpose question. Why am I on the planet? And, and also, freeing me i don't need i say i hesitate to say this because it's i'll always be caught out i was gonna say i don't need to be successful at this because i know i cannot achieve it in my lifetime so i know that what i'm doing now is definitely because i'm 63 it's definitely trying to set something up that will outlive me trying to i'm trying to set something in motion even if it's an idea with a few people um so i to me it's been that issue of what's my purpose and that that allows uh, allows flexibility it allows reinvention and the other thing that's helped me massively um, is the difference between success and mastery so much i think of our first half of life is about success whether it's success as an individual or success as a business or as a pastor or whatever we focus on success. So we've got kind of metrics in our head of what does a successful person look like? Whereas from an eldership point of view, the issue is never success. It's always about mastery. And by mastery, what I mean is, is that daily practice of what is important. That's what's important. So every day Mandela in his prison style would take 20 minutes a day to go through a meditative reflection around his personal transformation and and he, all that you know he carried that practice through so that to me is mastery it's not doing something just because it's going to make you look successful because he wasn't at that point it's just saying this is important this is true and to me the issue of who am i becoming is a far more in quest important question than what am i doing right now the business may come the business may fail you know at the end of the day probably no one is going to either remember us or judge us for the things that we led, but by the who we were. So who are we becoming? And yeah. uh, it's interesting. So um, Michelle Obama called her autobiography, didn't she? Becoming. Yeah. And um, there's a, a, a biography around um, Steve Jobs, which I think is now going to be the definitive one rather than Isaacson's one, which is called Becoming Steve Jobs. And it looks at the fact that young Steve Jobs and who Steve Jobs ended up becoming was totally different. Because in the end of his life, through his personal suffering, he, he just said, I need to leave something behind. What am I going to leave behind? And it became more, his legacy became more important to him than visible success. How can I leave an organization that will continue to impact the world? Yeah. Um, so I think they're the kind of things. Yeah, and I think that's really helpful because the, you know, for me, the purpose about what we've tried to do with Mosaic is, is we've always talked about the fact that our product is our people which is yeah. a bit of a glib statement. But what that means is that is that we genuinely believe it's important and that we have a responsibility 
as a business that is primarily about delivering service through through our employees mm. to to develop and train those employees that's good for the business but it's also yeah. really good for the employees as well and and so yeah i suppose what we have been focusing on in this time when we can do absolutely nothing other than just sit and wait and see what we're left with at the end is to is to continue to to reinvest in our staff and we've come up with sort of this idea of recreate mosaic because you know yeah. we existed and we'd been open as a business for twelve thousand odd days consecutively yeah. one day when we closed and then suddenly we are we are closed so when we come back to reopen we'll be in a position mm -hmm. where where we've got to recreate the business and actually yeah. in the past that would have been steve and myself that would have that would have tried to do yeah. that and now we've got to get others involved in trying to to recreate that so we are trying to generate energy and enthusiasm and and passion by yeah. saying to people it's your chance to shape how yeah. we build this this in the future and and hopefully that will enable us to find a way to yep. within the time scale that we want to might, sorry might not be within the time scale we wanted but at least to start to get to a point where where yeah we can afford to hand that over from a from a financial perspective not only for financial yeah. from the business but financial for my for myself and steve so but yeah we, we, we uh, digress slightly but that's um well no i think it's, it's interesting Kind of, the kind of thing that occurs to me with with this as well is you know what would it be to run because we've talked before about you know how do you grow the leaders out of your young people even in mosaic is is what would it be to get all of them even if they're furloughed on a series of zoom calls as an eldership masterclass because actually life is the classroom for learning mm. leadership and eldership and you know what what would a masterclass look like for them to say this is life this is life you're going down a road and, and and someone pings a landmine across the middle of it and you can't go down that we're in the middle of that what would a good leader do now and almost use it as a master class in life yeah for them so it's not just getting ready for the business but look how do you how do you deal with life how do you start using things like this? Because there'll be more. It's a pandemic now, but there may be another pandemic in 10 years or, you know, whatever. It, how do you use these things? Um, what are the lessons that we're learning that you can take on for who you are becoming? Because some of you are going to get really sick and some of you will start something and it will fail. And some of you are going to get married and, and it's going to end. And, you know, whatever is how do we use the current situation as a classroom yeah to really speak into who are you becoming who are you becoming as a result of covid because that it's both a leadership issue because we're in charge of who we are becoming and it's an eldership issue is this is you know if you look at the great elders is they went down their version of this track yeah um so anyway that was just so a so, so talking about that, because one of the things that I so I enjoy reading your your blogs, and there was one about um, why we shouldn't expect our political leaders to yeah. lead that you wrote towards the end of last yes. year. So, so what what um, what lessons can be learned from leadership that we've seen at government level in the in this crisis, Trevor? Oh my goodness! <laughs> um, I think there's probably a whole bunch of lessons, but I wrote the article because it's like. Everyone was wringing their hands at the lack of leadership. And I was thinking, well, well, what do you expect? What do you expect? If you, if you look at the autobiography of a lot of the people that are leading us right now, they haven't had a day's investment in leadership development in their life, some of them, ever. Yeah. You know, and there are some basic things, which is, you know, how do you create a sense of purpose? How do you create a clear sense of vision about where you want to be? How, you know, how do you create clear strategic planning? How do you make courageous decisions? Um, there's a whole load of kind of leadership 101 um, that I don't know that, that a lot of people had. And then they're put in these phenomenally important positions of leadership. And of course, what you do is if you've not really been schooled in principles of leadership is you react instinctively. 
you just yeah. kind of you do your best which is what any of us do in most situations we do our best with what we know well that's not the same as good leadership um so I was just thinking, well, why do we expect our leaders to lead when they've not been actually grown as leaders? Um, and then you know, my view is things like, because I, in for my uh, book before last, Doing the Right Thing, uh, I interviewed a colonel in the army. And uh, as soon as I heard about the whole issue of like getting vaccines out and and how do you mobilize a lockdown? I thought, well, the, the army would be brilliant. And people said, well, that, you know, that's heavy handed and that's all. And I said, no, no, not because of that. I said, they study how to do this every day. Yeah. Every day they are training themselves to deal with this magnitude of crisis. Mm -hmm. So who do you want at the forefront of dealing with a national crisis when it comes to planning strategy logistics? So I'd say, I'd want those guys, you know, just like I want a dentist to deal with my teeth. I don't want exactly. my, my builder doing with my teeth. I want a dentist dealing with my teeth. You know, I want a great strategist dealing with strategy. Um, but I think, you know, other things I would observe is I think we've observed the, the power of indecisiveness. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I, I worked in international youth work um, when I was 20. 21 and um, I remember one of the lessons of being in there was the importance in leadership of the ability to make the tough decision and having the courage to do that um, yeah. and you know it's it's you, you've got to have the courage to make the tough right decision not the popular decision and knowing you know it's the short-term pain long-term gain thing and um uh, so many times I have listened to what's been told to us. I, I it keeps going through my head. I don't know when you read Jim Collins and the Stockdale principle. Hmm. And uh, so he was a colonel in the, or general in the army in the Vietnam war, captured in the Hanoi Hilton and tortured. And um, he, he, he was interviewed afterwards about, you know, what had kept him going. And he said, I always believed I'd get out of it. I always believed I'd get out of it. You know, I was ruthless about facing the facts, but I always believed I'd get out of it. So Jim Collins says, well, what about the people who didn't survive? And he said, oh, that's easy. They were the optimists. They were the people who said, we'll be out of here by Christmas. And then they weren't out of here by Christmas. And then everyone goes, oh. So they said, all right, we'll be out of here by Easter. And they thought by being optimistic and setting these kind of optimistic deadlines, that would keep them going. But it actually destroyed them in the end. Yeah. And I, I honestly... Again, it's all personal perspective. I feel we've had too much of Stockdale's principle being ignored. Yeah. Um, please, please don't tell me that we're going to be out of here by Christmas. I don't need to know if we're going to be Christmas. I need to know that we're doing the right things so that my kids can be out of here sometime in the future. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of brilliant. Yeah, no, I can, I can completely agree. I can really relate to that. I think that's that's so true and maybe the media have a part to play in in uh in that in terms of that seems to be the key question they're asking look it's time to hand over to andy and, and duncan okay. almost for their for their questions but just one one before we go um yep. or before i go uh and let them let them loose so i want to just finish with a bit of hope and a bit of bit of positivity because because yes. a lot of the work you're doing now is about is about the leadership for the future it's about the youth yes manifesto and about how we build hope and encourage leaders amongst the, yeah. the the youth to solve some of the major crises that the world yeah. the world faces and i think that's so relevant and important right now so just share a little bit about what you're doing there and then then i'll hand over to andy and yes different levels of it so i'm focused i'm so i've created a project called the youth compass project which is basically how do we make elders out of everyone uh, Kate Robinson, who's one of the founders of One Young World, said, she said, I can't believe there's only one Mandela out there. And, and that's where I've been at for the last decade. I, said, I can't believe that either. I don't believe it's true. So uh, my, my passion, my mission is let's create a generation of elders and it has to start now. So that's at the kind of bigger level. So I'm working on that. But uh, on a, um, I was going to say a more daily level, I work as a mentor with One Young World. Uh, and a few other bits. So I'm working with young uh, social entrepreneurs predominantly in some of the world's very challenged places. 
you know, so I'm working with people in Somalia and Nigeria and Kenya and the Gambia and whatever, working with them. And, and you talked earlier on about the joy of it. Uh, I, I lament for some of my friends who are just retiring going, oh, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to play golf or what, you know? And I, I said to them, I said, there is a whole world of young people out there who are busting for you. They just want your experience. They just want you to sit with them. Because I sit with these young people and you talk with them and you share some stuff. I think, oh, wow. And you would think that you had just given them the crown jewels. And you're going like, this is leadership, like not even 101. <laughs> and, but, but nobody's giving it to them. No one's offering them. And so they're just so hungry. And, and there's all that experience out there in, you know, people in the second half of life. So, so I, it gives me great joy. And also it magnifies your impact. So, you know, even in the last few days, the people I've been mentoring are running whole youth projects in Kibera slum. Or I'm working with an, a young ophthalmologist who is doing incredible stuff in Nigeria. So by me in, investing in him, he is investing in uh, thousands, literally. Yeah. Um, so there is a great, a great joy in that work. Yeah, well, brilliant. Well, I've enjoyed reading about it, and I'm look look forward to hearing some more. But um, I've more than um, I've more than used up my my time, so I'm going to throw it over to to Duncan and Andy, who've been who've been listening into our conversation. And uh, yeah, boys, what what's your what's your reflections, Duncan? What what's your what hits you? Well, I I can't believe it's finished, Trevor. I could sit and listen to you talk for another hour and beyond. It's, it, I mean, you're so engaging to listen to, but also the stuff you're talking about. I don't think most people um, have heard before. Mm. You know, when it comes to leadership, these aren't the kind of things that are front row center and yet they are so important. Mm. So it's so refreshing to listen to someone talk about leadership in a way that you've never heard before. And it just, you know, the little light bulbs go on and you go, yeah. yes, of course. So, so thank you for this conversation. Well, it's so you. good. I want to take you right back to something you said right at the very beginning, actually. And it's become a theme all the way through the hour we spent together. But, you know, you've talked about, I loved it. I loved that analogy of saying to a business guy, how important is vision and mission? And, mm. and they say 10 out of 10. And then yeah. you say, well, if it's that important, have you figured it out for your own life? Well, mm. actually, no. Mm. Um, can I just push you right back on that? How, how does somebody in their 20s or 30s or someone like us three that are yeah. in our, you know, early 50s, mid 50s, how do we how do we go about figuring out what our mission is? I mean, you talked about yours being really clear. You know what yours is. Yeah. Yours is wanting to find more Mandela's and create yeah. more Mandela's. I know what mine is, and I've had it since yeah. I'm in my 20s, but I'm just fascinated for our two listeners. How do they figure out what their vision and mission is? How do you go about it? Yes, uh, great question, not a fast answer. I think um, someone who I... Uh, greatly expect, uh, respect. He once said that you need to get proximity. And what he meant was you've got to get up close to some things in life. So um, the reason I'm guessing, and might be wrong, that Dave has a passion for the leadership potential of young people is because he employs them. <laughs> he sees them every day. He saw that if they hadn't got this job, they may be unemployed right now. You know, so you're up close to the issue. For me, it was standing in one of the slums in Lusaka and pointing to my guide, to a little girl on the ground and saying, how often does she get to eat? And he said she gets one meal every two or three days. So that's what I mean about being close. So I'd say if you allow yourself to kind of look around the world, what is it? that either breaks your heart or makes you angry. I listened to a lawyer, human rights lawyer in, in the States a little while back, can't remember her name. Um, and she was asked, you know, what motivates you? And she said, if I'm honest, it's anger. <laughs> she said, I am so angry at the injustice against young black kids on the street. I am so angry about it. I have to do something about it. So it could be anger, it could be a broken heart. I think it is, to me, is what is it that gets your attention? And, and I know that starts young. I did a thing at a school in Canterbury and I, with my wife, Jane, we had about 120 
I think they were about 12 year olds in there. And I, we asked them that question, what is it that you see in the world that you say, this is not okay? And you'd expect one or two hands to go up. Anyway, we gave them a few minutes to think about it. Anyway, 120 hands go up. And then I started testing. I said, okay, so what is it for you? What is it for you? What is it? Because I thought maybe it's groupthink, you know. And they all had something different. I think this, and I see that, and I see, it's like, I know that, and I know in my own life, at 10 years old, I knew that kids dying in Biafra was not okay. And I think it's about helping people to, to not be overwhelmed by the world's issues, but by saying, what is it? And, and there's all levels of that is, let me bring it right down to another level, is um, I, I didn't have a happy father experience, let me put it nicely when I grew up and when I had boys of my own, I, I didn't want my boys to have the experience of fatherhood that I had. So it became a really important mission for me that my kids would have a very different experience of fatherhood so that they could then father their own kids in a different way. So the biggest joy for me right now is not just my boys, which are a joy, but actually they've all, they both got kids and watching them with their children, I, that, that was worth it. So it may be as much as how I wanna bring up my kids is, you know, so I think it's at different levels. Um, you know, for me, the, the the words going up the sticker rock around human potential. I, I profoundly believe in human potential, um, whether that's in my own sons or in kids who've never finished school in Nigeria. Trevor, this is so useful. And if you're listening to this because you're driving to work or you're doing the ironing or uh, you know walking the dog or whatever, don't miss this because the truth is, pandemics come around life has a habit of kicking you and throwing you in the ditch and um, your achievements are going to mean nothing in those <clears throat> excuse me those moments what is going to mean something is holding fast to what you believe is your the reason you as you said Trevor um, occupy a space here on planet earth mm. that's what keeps you going when life throws you in a ditch um, and my story is the same as yours, but in a different setting. You know, I um, I went to join an organization called the Salt Mine Trust in my yeah. early 20s because I was just bored with my job. I mean, I was earning amazing. I was earning more money than my dad, but I was bored with it. And so I went to do this just for a bit of fun, really. And I was so disappointed at church. I mean, I traveled around the country, around the world, went to hundreds of churches. And I thought there's very few of these places I would bring my friends to. Mm. And I thought, is it possible to create a church that unchurched people love? So you're right. For me, it was a sense of anger. That's where vision came from. Mm. And it was a sense of dissatisfaction. I yeah. was just dissatisfied with, with what was going on. So I started a church in Oxford. Yeah. And now I, I'm a director of a, a, an organization with, with a very clear mission, which is the same as mine, which is to help churches grow by reaching unchurched people. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, you can take and it, I've been shown the right boot of fellowship from a number of churches. So mm. you can take all that kind of stuff away. But the passion still lives yeah. on because I'm so dissatisfied at a church that doesn't work for people. So, yeah, yeah so good. So good. Yeah. So, Andy, what, what kind of reflections did you have? It's brilliant. And, uh, do you know, at the top of our time together, I said, uh, I think you've chosen one of the best episodes so far. Thanks for delivering, Trevor, um, <laughs> on many levels. Absolutely brilliant. And I love the line of questioning, Dave. You, you talk about what makes you angry in the world. Uh, identify the suffering um, mm. and align that with your purpose and your passion. Um, develop this personal, a person, a personal manifesto. And I love the idea of that. Um, but I just want to go like Duncan sort of slightly back over one of the things that you said um, that sort of halfway through your life, you've got the scaffolding in place. Um, yeah. Thanks very much. That's good to hear because uh, it sounds like my work's just beginning, which also kind of corresponds. Um, I do a martial art. I'm a black belt. And almost the first line of the black belt handbook, it says, congratulations, your training is just beginning. beginning so there's yeah. this real kind of um, 
convergence of thought there. One of the things that you've said, um, Trevor, um, this idea of story, the utility, the value of capturing that, what you're doing, and, and I think actually as authors, Dave um, and also Duncan, you're writing as an act of preservation. It's a point of reference in the first for an audience of one. So I really like that. I'll get to my question um, in a second. But I just felt that that idea of writing and capturing the truths um, is a painful thing to do, isn't it? Um, you may have heard of this um, of type two fun, which is something that you do, an activity that you do. And at the time, it's not fun. It's a bit like abseiling or um yeah, doing something like the Via Ferrati, going the Iron Way. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's exposing yourself. But on reflection, you just find out things, good things about the experience. Yeah, there's so much rich um, conversation, um, advice. So I guess the question I want to land on um, eventually, the listeners are probably thinking, is what do you want to be remembered for, if that's the right word? And I'm not sure the difference between being remembered for something and a legacy. Uh, perhaps that's another podcast. Uh, Trevor, what do you want to be remembered for? What's your legacy? One dimension of that for me is it's very individual. We were training in South Africa over months. We went and lived there and were training. And in one of our training, we were training on vineyards. So we were training people who were picking the weeds between the, the vines and people that were picking weeds out of the gardens at the front of the, and all the rest of it. And, and there were all kinds of people in our training. And I remember Jane and I pulled up like a month later into the car park of one of those vineyards. We're going to go in and have a cup of coffee. And we got out of our car and I heard a voice shouting from a distance and I couldn't work out. And he kept shouting and someone was waving and then we realized they're waving at you. And uh, so I walked over and I could see two of the young guys that we trained in their overalls digging the garden and they uh, we got close and before they said a word they held up their hands and i'm holding up my hand like this as if i've got a pen in my hand and they said to me we've still got our pens which is the metaphor they were saying to me we are still leading our lives and that's what i want i want individual young people in the most disenfranchised places in the world to say thanks that you came by because mm. we picked up our pen someone believed in us it's interesting in yeah. with the work in emerging leaders when when you'd start training a bunch of young people uh, you'd have them sit there and sometimes i'd be training literally hundreds at a time and they would have their heads down they didn't know why they were there what this was they'd jacked out of school at 12 so why on earth are they sitting in their heads were down and the first thing I would do is I would tell them that they had amazing potential and I would keep on weaving that story for as long as it took for them to start lifting up their head and look me in the eye because then I knew there was the beginnings of hope yeah and uh, it's about that it's about bringing tangible hope to young people so that they can fulfill their potential and that they will leave a legacy and wow. um so that's you know it, it, and to me as much as anything it's it's the stories you don't know about that excite me most mm -hmm. i i'm not on facebook anymore but when i was on facebook i i, I got a, a message from someone so you won't remember me i'm so and so from sierra leone which, you know, I went and I trained hundreds of young people in Sierra Leone. And he, he just said, you won't remember me. I was one of those groups. So I just want you to know what happened after you left. He said, uh, he said, I set up three young entrepreneur groups to create young entrepreneurs. He said, I've set up a radio program that teaches these leadership principles to thousands of uh, young people. And he said, we led the youth response to the Ebola crisis out of Freetown. Wow. That's what we did. And it, it blows you away because it's, it's so amazing that it, you're, it's like you're observing something that you weren't part of, yet you were part of it. And, and it, it's that feeling that actually, you know, it doesn't take much to touch someone 
around their potential to suddenly see that liberated. So that's, um, uh, I'd like to just carry on creating a slow release bomb that keeps doing that for young people. That's a great idea, slow release bomb. Hey, listen, we've um, uh, we've run out of time. We could talk about this for ages. Uh, It's so rich, it's so good. I. Just one quick question. Uh, If people have have enjoyed listening to you and they want to follow Trevor Waldock, read more of Trevor Waldock, where can can we find Uh, If you go onto www.trevorwaldock.net, my articles are there. There's a free book on the front page if you want to download that. And and then pretty much a lot of stuff is there. I haven't loaded up the latest project yet, but most of the stuff is there. Or if you go onto a YouTube channel and type in my name, you'll get videos. Brilliant. Trevorwaldock.net, and we can search for you on on YouTube as well. Um, And if you listen to this, I'd encourage you to do it because we've just dipped into an hour of Trevor's time and you can take him home with you and you can listen to a lot more. (laughs) I know exactly, exactly why Dave Cortine invited you onto this podcast because... You know, he he knew it was the only way he was going to get an hour's free leadership consultancy. <laughs> um, and and he's we've been privileged enough. Well. You know me so well. Yeah, which is fantastic. Um, listen, Waggle Dancers, I hope you've enjoyed it. it it's been immense. Uh, next episode, please tune in for the next episode because it's my friend. Uh, and, and I'm going to bring a friend who's taught me that white people have it better than black people. So my friend's name is Joel Edwards. He used to be Mm. the um, general director of the Evangelical Alliance. And I've worked with Joel for 20, 25 years. And we've got some very great stories to tell. And Joel's got some great stories to tell about his life. And uh, Joel has taught me that, yeah, white people have it better than black people. So it's a bit controversial, uh, but I would love you in the light of all the Black Lives Matter stuff to tune into next time when we get a chance to waggle dance together. So... That's it. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Andy. And thanks so much, Trevor. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Can't wait to hear from you again next time. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation. And please do subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or your usual podcast provider so that you can catch every episode. Thanks for listening to the Waggle Dance Podcast and see you next time.